Good evening. Welcome to Bite Into It. We are discussing computers and new technology as usual. This night we're joined by Simon Brown. Hello. And Laura Summers. Hey there. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. So tonight we are going to be featuring the Research Bazaar and we'll be telling you all about what a Research Bazaar is. It's not as it's not a bizarre, it's a bazaar, a bazaar, and uh, we'll be getting to that momentarily. But first of all, Simon, you have some news for us. HTTP2 is done. QFanfare, that's the title of a blog post published earlier today by Mark Nottingham. He's the chair of the Internet Engineering Task Force's HTTP Working Group. Announcing, the blog post is, that they've finished the first major update in more than a decade and a half to the Hypertext Transfer Protocol. That's HTTP to you and me. Uh, The standard by which we bump web pages around the tubes. Uh, HTTP2 is significantly more sprightly, uh, promising faster connections and a lighter load on overburdened servers. The finalised standard has been sent to the Request for Comments editor and should be published soon. Do we know the RFC number of this one, this standard? Uh, you're, you're asking beyond my research. <laughs> uh, but Google has announced they'll be swapping Chrome over to the protocol from their own concoction SPDY and you can already use Firefox to test out the newborn standard if you're super keen, which I'm sure many people are. I'm super keen. I'll be checking that out later tonight because I've got nothing better to do with my time. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Simon. Now, I think it's time to introduce our guests for this evening, uh, Dr. Fiona Tweedy and Damien Irving, PhD candidate. Welcome to studio. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Now, um, you are here because you've been involved in the Research Bazaar Conference. Fiona, you're the Training and Research Community Coordinator at Research Bazaar. And Damien, you're their Research Community Coordinator for the Physical Sciences and you also lead the Software Carpentry and the Hacky Hour initiatives. Um, there's a lot to unpack within this. Fiona, maybe you can get us started. Uh, what is the Research Bazaar Conference that's been running over the last two weeks? Uh, well, as our boss, David Flanders, is fond of saying, the Research Bazaar is a concept a campaign and a conference. Uh, So the Research Bazaar has been all about trying to get researchers and technology talking to each other more happily. So the last six days we've had an intensive conference at the University of Melbourne. The first three days we're training up um, a new batch of trainers in software carpentry techniques. And then um, for the last three days, those new trainers, with um, help of already accredited trainers like Damien, have been being put through their paces, getting their L's. Um, And we've had about 190... um, early career researchers and postgrads come through for training in a whole range of digital tools. So when we first read about this Research Bazaar event, we thought, great, scientists getting together, doing stuff, that's not really within the remit of our show. And then we dug a little bit deeper and we found out it's actually scientists developing the digital sides of their skills. So can you tell us what, you know, have you done much research into the community and found that there's a skills gap there? Um. Yeah, I'm not sure if any hard research exists, but it's a pretty common experience um, that researchers have these days that they, they do an undergraduate degree in something. Say, I did mining meteorology. I learn lots about how weather and climate and things work. And then I walk out into the real world. For me, I got a job at CSIRO. First day, they hand me the keys to a super supercomputing facility in Canberra. And I go, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> and, um, you've just given an L-plate of the keys to a Ferrari. Um, 
So, yeah, there's a massive skilled shortage that people have and just you can't do research these days without those skills, but they're not the things traditionally taught in an undergraduate degree. So they're not being taught, and how did people um, start to learn them? Are they just getting handed down in organisations? Um, yeah, it tends to be very much, I mean, I describe it as next to Nelly training. If you're lucky enough to be in a department or have a supervisor who's keyed into technology and the latest techniques, um, that's great. But if you're in a more of traditional department, as I came from doing um, history at the University of Sydney, um, you may never meet some of these, these skills and these tools. So it's very unevenly distributed. I think there are some programmers listening right now who are terrified at the description of, uh, of this type of knowledge base because we're going, but there's so much foundation work that you need to work of these things and they'd be giddy as school kids to get access to supercomputers like that. A big question I have is where do you start? How do you start teaching people the basics of programming? Like- how do you how do you give them a leg up? What's the first thing you help them with? Well, the real philosophy um, of the software carpentry approach is that to turn a researcher into a computer scientist is a waste of a good researcher. So we're really um, trying to make sure that they get an introduction to the basic skills, but we focus on it being um, researcher-led training so that they learn um, skills which are going to be applicable in their research um, without hitting them with a lot of stuff which they'll never use. How do you make that decision? We all research, um, come from research backgrounds ourselves. Um, we keep It's a very iterative process, I guess. We keep um, playtesting the materials, asking people what's useful to, to them, what they want to learn, um, watching for when their eyes start to glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things I was interested to see you looking at were um, things to do with natural language and explaining to scientists how uh, programs can work of natural language. Can you tell us a bit about some of that? Uh, well, that's been a real passion of mine. Um, coming from a humanities background, I really want to stress that this isn't just for scientists, that um, you hear the, you'll hear the term digital humanities um, used quite a bit. So trying to get uh, humanities scholars to thinking about their the texts that they work with as data, but also encouraging people on the computing side and the science side to understand that there's there's more of an overlap. So we were starting to teach Natural Language Toolkit, which is a library of Python, uh, so we could get uh, researchers from the humanities and the social sciences able to start doing some quantitative analysis of really big bodies of text. So uh, for our users who can't think of how that might apply, for example, when we look at search engines, uh, that's often when people start experiencing natural language being used uh, online and the search engine having to interpret a string, you know, a sentence that you type in and kind of make sense of it and all the different ways we can branch out the different parts of that sentence and relate them to, uh, you know, tables and things of information that we already have and then draw some meaning from that. So you can immediately start to see how this could be very helpful for scientists working with really wordy concepts. Um, Is this a... Have you noticed, like, as you said, we went to science there again. Mm. Have you noticed a significant difference in enthusiasm between the science and humanities for this? Because coming from a humanities background, I can imagine a whole heap of people who I've worked with being aghast at the idea <laughs> of supercomputers <laughs> somehow sullying their research. Uh, definitely. It's a much harder sell to some of the humanities and social science researchers, whereas um, Damien and the um, other, the rest of the team who are on the more sciencey side um, just can't keep up with demand. You've got people beating down the door for workshops. Yeah, usually our waiting lists are longer than our attendee lists, so it's, it really is quite crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
So, Damien, when we when we talk about the humanities sort of areas that I've worked in, like media and law, we talk about just the exponential explosion of, of data. Um, there's far more documents now that we need to work with. Are you seeing similar things within your fields? Are we creating more data, say, in the field of DNA sort of testing, oh, sequencing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in, I mean, in all areas of science, computer models are more powerful. They can produce higher resolution data and all those, all those types of things. Um, but interestingly... Most researchers don't have big data problems. They have, like, media, medium data problems. Um, and that's... It's actually... It's the people who have realised that. Like, there's a there's a package in Panda... Uh, sorry, in Python for dealing with tabular data called Pandas, which is the new kid on the block. Everyone loves it. And the catchphrase... The author's catchphrase there is it's really written for people who are looking at medium data because that's where most of the action is. That's where 95% of the researchers are. Um, their data doesn't fit in an Excel spreadsheet anymore, but it's not big data that you need um, you know massive parallelized computing on some supercomputer to do it's it's medium data um, and that's where the action's at even though it doesn't sound as cool <laughs> I don't know I think it sounds pretty cool it's, it's just going to be the next matcher you know it's going to be instead of big data articles on Gartner we're going to start reading about medium data <laughs> Um, so how uh, do you approach finding uh, and identifying people to be train-the-trainer type people within your field? Um, for us, it, it, it's come a lot from people who they... It's kind of a, a progression. They come to one of our workshops. They're you know typically some of the most engaged people in the class and then they come to some of the, the social things that we put on afterwards or something and um, basically they just keep coming back and seeing us and then we end up saying, would you like a job? <laughs> um, yeah, so you can kind of... You can pick them in a class, the people who are really engaged, the people who get a real kick out of helping other people learn these things. Typically they've been through some pain themselves in learning it um, without any assistance and they, they want to kind of see that other people don't go through that pain. So does your information cross over the sort of skills you're imparting? Does it cross over into methodologies as well? Do you start talking about lean and agile methodologies that are rife throughout the uh, IT sort of industry? Not so much. We don't use that sort of language, but mm. um, certainly research methodology um, we think about a lot. I have given my metadata talk um, several times in the last few days. <laughs> well, actually, what you do find, interestingly, is that scientists tend to have a lot more in common in terms of the tools they use, like programming tools and things like that, than they do with their actual research. So their research might be quite different, but we found, particularly at the Research Bazaar Conference this week, that if you compare people on the tools they use um, as opposed to their actual research topic, there's quite a lot of commonality, um, which is a nice finding. I was curious to ask why there's so few languages or what seemed to me so few languages compared to the plethora that's out there that are being trained for your researchers. Like, is there a reason that Python is the standout? What's what's the sort of um, rationale behind that? Um, well, I mean, Python is certainly one of the most easiest, easiest languages to learn. Um, the syntax makes a lot more sense, um, so it's great for beginners. And also I think a lot of research software these days is open source and things so that counts you out of uh, tools like MATLAB and other proprietary software um, so it's it's gaining a lot in that sense um, but yeah I think it's just it's a language that a community can grab hold of and develop their own packages make them openly available and so people have taken it and run with it. 
Yes, um, R, which we teach as well as another um, free and open source piece of software. So there are specialist libraries which um, researchers can go on and use once we've introduced them to the basics, but we really do try to emphasise the um, use of free and open source software so we're not um, asking our researchers to then sign up and buy something really expensive and locking them into a particular platform. So I was lucky enough to pop down to Research Bazaar on Monday and uh, enjoy the lovely campus feel with tents and you know warm sessions of people sitting in circles and sharing knowledge on the grass so to um, give our listeners a bit of a feeling for the different sorts of sessions there can you describe to us you know some of the different ways you share knowledge at your event Uh, well as you saw uh, we were trying to get people out of, as out of the classrooms at the end of the day and onto the lawns so that we were starting to share knowledge in different ways and encourage, I suppose, more of a peer-to-peer sharing of knowledge rather than people just um, receiving knowledge from a, from a teacher on high. So we had all sorts of topics up for discussion. We had visitors from the Mozilla Science Lab, which we'll be talking to later. Um, we had a session on Open Glam, which is galleries, libraries, archives, museums. So um, talking about the, the joys and the challenges of working with cultural collections. Um, we also, it being a geeky meetup, we played a lot of board games. <laughs> <laughs> but there were actual labs as well with, you know, computers and things and people going at it? Very much so. Um, and the 3D printing um, demonstration, the winners of our 3D printing development grants came down and shared their work. And on Tuesday night we had the Tech Toy Library come down and visit so people could play with some emerging technologies. We had an Oculus Rift, we had a 3D scan and um, all sorts of fun things to play with. <laughs> it does sound like fun. So obviously there's lots of people meeting at these events and, uh, you know, usually I guess conferences that scientists will go to will be an entire room full of molecular evolutionary biologists. Have you had any examples of research connections coming out of these these people meeting you know beyond learning to use the tools is there is i know it's early days but is there new is there any new research that's been sparked by these connections um hopefully i guess uh it is early days like you say but hopefully um and there is a plan to run this thing now uh every 12 months um and i guess we'll probably talk about this a little bit later but having it distributed so it's not just a University of Melbourne, but um, all over the country, holding all these events simultaneously. And so hopefully um, five years from now we can look back and say, hey, we've got some case studies of these researchers who hadn't met people in this discipline and now they did and they've got a paper published in Science and it's a, it's a great win for us. But, yeah, I guess uh, the proof will be in the pudding, but it seems like that's what should flow from this. I mean, there was such a community aspect and, and social aspect of the conference and that... that I'd be surprised if something like that didn't happen. I'm really hopeful that we'll get something out of the Natural Language Toolkit uh, material that we were teaching. We're working with um, our demonstration data set for the conference was a um, corpus of Malcolm Fraser's speeches, which is held by the University of Melbourne's archives, uh, which they've tried to open up to make um, available to researchers. So we started looking at um, processing and modelling using uh, that corpus. And I'm hopeful that um, in a collaboration between um, us and archives and the corpus linguist who's been developing a lot of our corp- uh, training materials, that we'll be able to, to publish something on our experience of developing um, that course and playing with that body of text. 
That would be fantastic. Uh, every time the word of the year comes out and I'm slightly disappointed by it, I always think, <laughs> has, you know, how was this research? Was this just people around a committee table throwing ideas around? And I feel like if we could get some people using your natural language toolkit, it could actually be an evidence-based word of the year. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Sounds good to me. I think we uh, we need some funding, ARC grants, people talk to us. <laughs> you might be putting an entire committee out of a job. Oh, no, no. You, you can't put a committee out of a job. That's, that's That would be very bad. <laughs> right. um, so how is the Research Bazaar supported? Like, if you're going to have this event in another year's time, are you going to be able to sustain um, any uh, communications throughout the year? Do you have funding to do that sort of thing yet? Um, we've got some funding from the Australian National Data Service who are big supporters of ours because we're really teaching researchers about publishing and reusing their data. And we've also had support from Nectar, um, who built the National Research Cloud um, because we are getting researchers using um, processing data on the cloud and using cloud-based tools. Great. Uh, but, of course, we're, like everyone, always in search of, of more funding ideas, so if you've got any... <laughs> Well, there's a big network of uh, community listeners out there. Hopefully someone on a committee somewhere, one that I haven't recommended out of a job, will be listening and hopefully getting some bright ideas. Uh, Fiona, Damien, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Simon, Laura and Vanessa. And uh, on Monday night, I had the opportunity to speak with Caitlin Thaney. She's the director of the Mozilla Science Lab, and their mission is to promote openness, innovation and opportunity on the web. Caitlin's in Australia at the moment to participate in the Research Bazaar, which we were just speaking about with Fiona and Damien, which is being held at Melbourne University and just wound up today, actually, after a couple of weeks. The Mozilla Science Lab works together with the Software Carpentry Foundation to try to access digital... uh, to try and address, sorry, digital skills gaps for scientists. And um, I begin by asking her to explain what software carpentry is. Software carpentry has existed for around 15 years. I'm Greg Wilson, uh, who's up in Toronto in Canada. And when we launched the Science Lab back in June 2013, we launched with Software Carpentry as our leading educational program. It's an open source program that works to uh, provide two-day workshops and open curriculum around various technical skills that can introduce some of the efficiencies of programming without expecting you to become a coder at the end of it, that can help shift research to be more open and collaborative. Though it's largely focusing on teaching things like version control and documentation, Python or R, some of these these languages and some of these tools that we hear about as research is, is starting to evolve with this model of helping to keep that building within universities by having researchers themselves teaching this to their peers. So there's that relatability as well as the reinforcement from learning by teaching. We hear about the need for coding and web skills to support data analysis and science. How do you think the skills gap emerged? We've seen in certain disciplines uh, a real divide, uh, and we're moving 
moving, you know, step by step past that. But if you take, for example, say biology, much of the uh, awareness there originally started when it came to those that were working either in the wet lab, those doing the pipetting, doing the hands-on experimentation, versus the emergence of those that were working in simulations and and also focusing on data analysis and more of the computational component. And those two groups didn't necessarily communicate across that divide. But what we're seeing now is that as research inherently across the board, not even necessarily for those that are doing the computational flavor of that discipline, that there's a real need for data skills and also some efficiencies that come along with programming without necessarily needing the researcher to be a software engineer. And so thinking about what we can do to help increase that awareness as data is becoming inherently more data intensive and also computationally intensive, but also, you know, what can we do to help shift some of the culture there? Research is inherently individual individualistic and what we can do to knock down some of those barriers while still helping to advance individuals' careers. It's really interesting that you mentioned the individualistic nature of a lot of research. Are you finding that just these gaps are encouraging people to reach out and forcing them to work in a more collaborative way? We are. I mean, and when I say the sort of individualistic component there, you know, the com- highly competitive nature of research dictated by some of the funding models, dictated by the way that career progression is still mapped and the incentives and rewards based on publication within the university. It's a system that has been around for quite some time. So getting that to move, it's, it's almost like moving a castle. You know, take some really incremental steps towards that. We're finding that some of these exercises, for example, introducing things like code review, which is really heavily used when it comes to software development and also in the open source community, can help provide an environment where it is appearing to, and it is in nature, providing an understanding of the technical skills and the components there, but it also is getting a group of researchers to speak about their work without having fear of coming across as not knowledgeable on a subject which could seem like it could jeopardize your uh, your work or fear of being scooped. So how can we help structure a dialogue where they're learning together and also advancing their work as in that sort of way. So the design of experiments and the structure of someone's analysis is very unique to their research. How do you find the scientists you've worked with who you've introduced to, say, a concept like GitHub have responded to that concept? It's interesting because there are a number of a number of pressures and a number of forces that are starting to really help elevate the need for broader awareness and also broader availability of research from in the U.S. in certain contexts, different funders that are starting to push this, also publishing uh, publishing groups that are starting to say these other materials and the other components of research are needing to be detailed in their own right and needing to be made available. And so when it comes to introducing items like GitHub, I think the main the main value that we're starting to see for those that aren't necessarily familiar with that sort of technology is the fact that it allows you to have a uh, track record in the provenance to see what is going on when it comes to the versioning for it. So, for example, if you and I were collaboratively editing a document, the likelihood that we'll send various versions of Word documents that have our initials appended in various numbers and versions to it, it's really difficult to know at what point did you make an edit to the second paragraph, and maybe I want to go back and reference that. And so providing a, an awareness of how this can be mapped into things that are not specifically looking at software or code 
road for those that are possibly earlier on in their journey or coming from a different perspective has been useful to help stimulate that use within their within their work. Uh, have you found that there are some skills that scientists are bringing to the table when they begin to learn some software skills that give them a bit of a head start? It's an interesting play because we do operate across such a diverse set of researchers, though I think that the way that they approach their their work has led to some really interesting creation of different materials. And through software carpentry, as well as some of the work that we're moving into at the science lab, respecting the fact that there is not there are different needs from these sub-communities and we need to help create things that allow for the collective whole to move forward but also with diverse paths that are allowing them to stay engaged and, and suited. And one of the things that Software Carpentry and other open educational research projects do quite well and we're starting to see more of, especially using GitHub, which you mentioned previously, is providing a, a means and also a culture from the get-go that's about pushing changes to curriculum or adapting it to your own use and having that still be circulated to the community so that someone else can come along, make their own changes, or use it for their uh, individual purpose and, and creating a, a, a habit of that in, in the culture as well. Can you describe a particular project which might help people understand what good digital research can achieve? When you're thinking about the way that research right now is being published and made available, and there are, of course, different exceptions. Various, various publish, publishing groups are moving forward at, at different levels right now when it comes to making that information available for reuse. Um, but as someone that focuses quite heavily on re reuse from my work at Mozilla and also at Creative Commons prior to that, you can imagine that someone that wants to build upon that work, which is what research is inherently all about, Taking a piece of published research now, the likelihood that you're going to have trouble getting to that immediate starting point because, for example, the data might not be detailed to a point where it's usable. There might be uh, an issue or a question when it comes to the methods. It, the code might not be executable in the fashion which is put through. And so I think that the practices that we're putting forward, it's essentially so that you're not teaching someone how to clean their room when they're 15, but more so embedding that earlier on so that it is a best practice that seems natural rather than rather than antithetical to the way that they're being taught by their advisors. So giving them more power to have that discussion and also to influence their peers earlier on as they're learning about the research process and, and developing their trajectory for their research careers. So, are a few days of instruction enough to learn some of these skills? It's enough for a jump start, and it's enough for that initial aha moment. And what I think Software Carpentry does a brilliant job at is setting people on that pace and, and getting them excited. Though, following a workshop or following one of these other sorts of events that we've run, um, we find that there are still some other additional supports that need to be there before we can have them set into a trajectory where we've seen many of them come in recent, in recent months to want to be instructors so that they can give back. That space in between and those different learning pathways, we've spent a lot of time over the last 18 months of the science lab figuring out ways that we can help support the broader research community, even beyond software carpentry, to help establish that momentum and create leaders within the community. And so we have 
you know, a number of other activities from sprints around educational materials, technical uh, components of sprints, and also getting people involved with tools and also getting them to work across, each, across different divides and, and in teams, as well as other sorts of events and building out things like study groups and supports that may lead to additional skills training within the university. And so we want to help build not only that mentorship scaffolding over the next year, but also some additional curriculum that can help play and fill in some of the gaps so that whether it's software carpentry or data carpentry which is a spin-off from that whether it's a, a program that's being run at a research institution that's focusing on data intensive skills that there is uh, a more a clearer engagement path for these researchers coming through so they can have a higher success rate of advancing and, and applying these skills to their work so in line with that, can you tell us anything about the fellows program that you're launching for early career researchers? Yes, so we just received a grant from the Helmsley Charitable Trust, which is a group in, in New York, uh, where I personally live, that is going to enable us to look a little bit more at the incentive structure for some of these people that we refer to you know, as, as lead instructors or as community leaders, however you want to phrase it, um, so that we can start to see if having a more structured program that not only provides these early career researchers with the ability to seek that training and to have an incentive and also you know, a salary behind it to you know, move that through so they can not only get that training but then also apply it to providing them with some of the soft skills about you know, the participatory element of research and how to get them to help run events for their community, building something lasting not only for their own research but also at their university or within their discipline, what that can do to help jumpstart and provide um, at least something for members of the community to you know, serve as a, as a model to drive engagement. You know, as we've seen with a number of other groups, you know, we have in the software carpentry community, there's over 250 instructors, which is incredible uh, worldwide. And ResBaz, last week we taught an additional 45 who are helping train and do some of the workshops this week. Uh, but what we've seen is that, you know, life gets busy and incentives start to pull you away, knowing that you know, you've You've got something that you need to do so that you can get that paper published to advance your career that sometimes gets things put on the back burner. And so if we have a dedicated fellowship program where you have 10 months to really focus on not only building up those skills, but building up the community at your university, can that help tilt the balance and serve as a model for other disciplines and other universities around the world? That sounds fantastic. I'm going to end with a silly question. I wonder if you've noticed any cultural differences while running your workshops in Australia between our Australian scientists and uh, your American ones. Culturally, I think that the thing I find most fascinating is the environment, the research ecosystem. And I know that in Australia there's um, a slightly different trajectory when it comes to, say, postdoctoral work and also PhDs. And I think that that is, is really fascinating to me. So looking at ways that we can help create sustainable pathways so that the researchers that are going through these trainings or getting involved can give back. You know, thinking to some of the friends that I used to work with at MIT that have been doing their PhD work for seven years versus, you know, the 
the funding and the realities here in Australia, I find that a little bit more interesting as to how that starts to trickle down and, and where we can help exert pressure in the process to get people involved and make sure that we are helping to create something lasting at universities. And other than that, the people in Australia and New Zealand are, are fantastic. So we've seen some real excitement as well as some, some varied perspectives. I know one of the people that was in the training last week has been to Antarctica for research four times, and that's something that you just don't get in the States as readily. Thank you very much for sharing your ideas and your plans and all these great concepts with us. Thanks, Caitlin Thaney. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're with Bite Into It, talking computers and technology. Guys, there's a bit of news this week. We don't even know where it came from. It's been everywhere. Tell us about it. Yep, it's been widely reported, as Simon told me to say, (laughs) that Vint Cerf has been warning everyone to start printing their photos out in case they might lose them. Although this is actually not really the gist of what he was talking about. I think it's sort of someone took the kernel of the idea and ran with it a million miles away. So essentially, he's talking about whether or not our digital formats may be readable in the future. That's the gist of it. And And, And why do we care? what Vint Cerf says. Who's, who's oh, Vint Cerf? Vint Cerf is currently a Google vice president and also one of the internet pioneers, sort of a great-grandfather of yeah. the internet, and knows a lot about packets of data and generally a smart dude. Yeah. Was it DARPA when TCPIP was being funded and yeah, that, that sort of thing? Right. Yeah. 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 Also wears a three-piece suit. Who doesn't believe a man in a three-piece suit, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm quite suspicious of a man in three-piece suit. <laughs> but yes, he's meant to be pretty sharp, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. As I understand it. All right. So, so he's, sorry, he's he said basically of we need to find a way to store all of this data that we've created. Mm. But I, from my understanding, for the, the benefit of historians and a myth, mythical future scientists who might be looking back, archaeologists who might be looking back and going, oh, no, I, I saw the, uh, the phrase dark ages used where there's just not enough written down for us to understand. But, you know, I mean... Say an uh, archaeologist is looking back and wants to understand what Candy Crush is, how do they go about playing it? Well, I think um, what he's described is this idea of digital vellum, a piece of a snapshot or an X-ray of the environment, the operating system, the pieces of software that you're running that would allow you to recreate that environment and then run the software to see whatever it was that people were playing, the games they were playing, the photos they were looking at, whatever bits and pieces they were experiencing online, offline. Um, and, and in general, as I understand it, uh, this is this is not a new idea, and it's certainly not an idea that's going to come on us any time in the immediate future. So it's not something to worry about for the next two weeks or two years or even two decades. It's just something that may happen in the far distant future. I would have loved to have seen uh, Brewster Kale, the, internet, the librarian behind the internetarchive.org, in a room with Vint Cerf when he said something like this, just to see what his response was, because mm. archive.org does have as a as it's remit that it is out there, you know, capturing snapshots of what's happening online at least, maybe not, you know, computer games and those sort of things, but still a vast lot of data that's on on the web these days and every other word we hear is that we're creating more data than we can ever look at and more than presumably researchers can ever <laughs> sift through. So so some of that must must survive at a, at a point. Um, mm. plus I think he's, he's got a point though. I mean, for example, I have 
created plenty of uh, real videos in my time, which I have never been able to work out how I am ever going to watch again. You know, what, you know, if they're sitting there as tiny little allegedly videos with icons next to them, throwing to a player that you just can't find anymore that won't even work on an operating system that I'm using. So I, I think there is a point there. My wonder, query, I guess, is... Yes, if we accept this is necessary, how are we going to do it when so much of the computer world is so closed about how this stuff works? I mean, sure, you can take an X-ray of an iPhone, but that's not going to let you run an app. You still need a lot more information that is not necessarily widely available. Well, it's interesting. I draw the parallel with software environments. There's a lot of people trying to tackle the problem of how you reproduce a software development environment um, with tools like Docker and Vagrant. And um, I think that's something that we're thinking of right now in the immediate sort of future for development because even as computers proliferate, as um, coding languages proliferate, as people start to use more and more widely varied development environments, it can be a huge task to reproduce someone else's repo just to make a couple little changes. Yeah. So if if we're dealing with that for small, small development environments now, I think we just need to sort of expand out the idea a little bit further and hopefully allow people to recreate whole operating systems, whole sets of software. Um, but it seems doable. I have really conflicting thoughts on this. The librarian part of me goes, yes, we must always, you know, preserve some sort of environment and figure out how to do that. And you're seeing a lot of that in museums and things at the moment, particularly when you look at things like computer games and uh, digital art. And they're figuring out how to preserve the hardware so that they can translate the art or the game or whatever through that medium so it exists the way it did. But the other part of me thinks all of this is a bit of hubris and how important is stuff that doesn't survive and, uh, you know, how much needs needs to get through. And there's, there's so much there surely enough will come through to, to communicate what we need. And I actually think it's it's exciting to think of a culture where you get small groups of enthusiasts who painstakingly reproduce some primitive technology to get the thrill of playing, for example, Pong in, in a, you know, in a mint condition type environment instead of through an emulator because that's not pure. We have those sort of interest groups now. I don't see why they wouldn't exist in the future as well. I totally agree. I was just thinking Sonic the Hedgehog when you oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. Which brings me back to internetarchive.org who've done a wonderful job over the Christmas holidays releasing all of these vintage games through emulators through their platforms. Oh, right? That is such a dangerous dangerous <laughs> thing. Oh, have my, have you fallen into oh, the archive hole? My entire childhood encapsulated in a single website. No, it was so good. And it's just so nice to see uh, that that stuff is being is being kept and can in the way that it's supposed to be to be played it's not sort of you know being yes Street away. Fighter wasn't about the joystick to, that eventually wouldn't go left anymore right. you know it's actually about that you know the game mechanic and the, the experience yeah and it sort of it had the same feeling of when you walk into a arcade in the back corner of some deserted holiday destination which hasn't been updated since the mid-80s. And you go, you know, 1942, all right, I'm going to play this for hours. And it it did. It had that, gelled that same sort of feeling in me to just wander through that website and go, I've forgotten about that. 
But also presumably from a software point of view, it's easier to go from more sophisticated software to less sophisticated and create an emulator and pluck out the guts of it and make it work than it is to go the other way. So for us to try and anticipate, you know, how we're going to preserve these things on things that don't exist yet is quite the challenge. Um, and, you know, and lots of these things have their flavour because of our technical limitations. That That is an essential uh, part of any software scope. It's like, what's our processing power? You know, what resolution can we display? You know, what are our sounds like? And we can still go back and listen to Altered Beast or play Altered Beast and listen to the characters changing and go, yes, it's still that just above 8-bit but not much sound. You're 16-bit, awesome. But... I also wonder how much, because so much of what we get from history is letters and correspondence. And the idea of, you know, the idea of preserving our correspondence right now is, you know, a, it's a security nightmare. It's a privacy nightmare. It's, you know, it, it conjures these conversations that we're constantly having about, um, communication privacy and communication about you know listening in about yes. government surveillance and so and think at a social level what happens if in four generations people can read the emails of their forebears mm. is that this is just unhealthy navel gazing <laughs> It's a good point. Like what we think is worth archiving versus what we just generate in our daily use. Those are two different things. Like I wouldn't ever think that all of my email correspondence is worthy of future generations reviewing. Um, but certainly, will we take responsibility for it? Like there's a whole question of digital archiving of our own personal content that is is a big one. I think we haven't really worked out yet. How do we how do we work out what's worth saving and how do we identify that to future generations? Do web websites that we produce stay live after we die all those sorts of questions i think have mm. have been floating around for a while now i love laura that that perspective really speaks to your um, obvious user experience experience <laughs> because totally. you know drawing that line between observable and you know reportable behaviors and the difference that the chasm mm. between the two of what we think so mm. vital and what we think we do versus yeah not knowing people's what intentions what's, mm. what is the intention of the correspondence um, yeah, that's amazing. Mm. I think it's time for us to um, hear a message and then we'll be back with some opportunities and events after this. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. With Bite Into It, speaking computers and technology with Simon, Laura and Vanessa and Dan behind the desk. Time for some events. Um, at the moment, Webstock is on in Wellington, and that's always an exciting one to follow. Uh, they are across the ditch, as we say here, but um, they do tweet excessively, Webstockers. So check out the hashtag. I think it's just hash Webstock. They don't seem to have the year behind it this year, but um, suss that out. They've got a lot of great speakers. I haven't got them in front of me at the moment, <laughs> tragically. <laughs> Um, Josh Canal, a, uh, a station favourite, is over there, and we're we're hoping that um, he'll be, you know, giving us some inside words on what to follow up after after the festival. I notice that the connected community hackerspace is going off right now. Uh, they've got a, a session tomorrow night where you can learn to PCB, including soldering and creating circuit boards and all of that sort of fun stuff. Um, but they've got lots of stuff going on and it it 
I don't know. I mean, maybe they've been firing for a long time and I'm just noticing, but they seem to be really getting into the uh, the workshops where you can learn to do stuff. Mm. And, yeah, I, I found that really inspiring. I noticed that you found another sort of workshop you learned to do something thing as well, or Was that the Melbourne AI people? I believe so, yeah. Yes, they had their opening meetup last night, and I think the intention of the meetup is to actually sit down and work shop machine learning stuff and help people who are interested in AI and machine learning really get some deep diving happening, which is pretty exciting. So if, if that's your thing, if you're into maths and modeling and machine fat neural networks, then you should keep an eye out for those dudes. Who's not into that? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're more into arty digital takes on, uh, on the current political environment, then remote-controlled terrorist coffin might be for you. This is opening on Thursday the 26th of Feb from 5 to 7. It's running through to the 26th of March, so you've got a fair bit of time to get there. Um, The public program in particular hopes to open up space for important conversation and reflection about ethics of design and uh, emergence of new technologies. Uh, They're contemplating things like big data and surveillance and privacy and uh, freedom of movement in a public space and reflecting on terrorism, which is where obviously the the terrorist coffin comes in. also, looking at links between games and warfare and consumer society, and that's that's quite a rich area to mine. Uh, it's associated with the RMIT School of Art Galleries, and uh, we'll we'll put out a link to that later. But there's a diverse range of um, artists involved there, and uh, yeah, worth looking at. Speaking of artists and data, there's a show on in Hawthorne at the Hawthorne Arts Centre from the 3rd of March. It's called Data Flow, and according, according to the blurb, it's a creative exploration of how data flows through the production of art in an increasingly digital world. So I, it seems to me to be about artists responding to how data has changed art and how digital art has changed art. Uh, artists in Dataflow include uh, Viv Miller, Brian Spear, Georgia Roxby-Smith, Erin M. Riley and a bunch of others. So that, that looks well worth checking out if you're easily getting to that sort of side of the river. And yeah, I wonder how much of that stuff is going to be seen on screen versus like physical artifacts. If it's yeah. digital art about digital art, that'd be pretty happy to see that. But, yeah, I think so. I, I, I would imagine so, but mm. you know, maybe it's just sculptures of. Uh, who knows? I'm going to go and check Sculptures it out. Sculptures of circuit boards. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Those sort of ponds with LED lights floating in them. Yeah. I've seen a lot of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Troy Innocent's going to be part of that data flow show, and he's uh, he's been doing a really creative um, sort of things in physical environments uh, around Melbourne for a long time. So I think a lot of people might know him. Hey, yeah, this- sorry, one more thing that I noticed is if you're uh, someone who does work on your lonesome and is looking for a uh, new open co-working space and you're based in Melbourne's West, then Kindred Studios are opening up their co-working area. They've got lots of... Uh, they've got an audio studio, they've got a video studio, they've got lots of stuff for, your, for you sort of arty slash digital time. Types and they're hoping for NBN soon. Oh, great! So, uh, yeah, power to them. That's mm. that's opening up if you're uh, looking for that sort of stuff on the inner west side. 
I guess uh, the last lot of events that I wanted to mention is just um, that it's worth really trawling the Docklands Library website because there are so many events happening there that we actually can't cover them all. Um, it's a really cool space. They've got a sound studio, which you can use if you've taken one of their training courses. So for fledgling radio um, people out there or, you know, musicians, um, people who want to make audio of any kinds, then you can learn some really basic skills there. They've also got computer labs and they're teaching people really useful uh, bits of software like uh, Photoshop. There are Photoshop basic courses. So if you're a keen photographer, but, you know, maybe need to know how to do some retouching and, uh, you know, how to work of HDR images, for example, that sort of stuff, you can cross into that. They've also got uh, physical workshop type things that cross over into your hacker space connected community type events i mean so people wanting to work physically with um with digital stuff and soldering irons and and that sort of thing soldering irons and libraries sounds like a scary combination it sounds fantastic what are you talking about there's, there's no fear just good ventilation that's all we need you know it's nice quiet work True. it's it's a it's a very symbiotic relationship i think but um they're running tons of sessions there and I, it feels a little bit like um back when i don't know if they still do back when vicnet used to really hold the keys to um, free community-based learning in these sort of fields. Did you guys ever go to any of those VicNet sessions? Before my Melbourne time, unfortunately. Ditto, I think. Oh, really? I um, I had the pleasure of volunteering for them and um, working with uh, people from community organisations who wanted to build their first website. So there's quite a lot of bowling club websites and uh, bridge and that sort of thing that doesn't really owe anything to me, I would say. I, I doubt any of those around. These days, we'd probably be sending them, what, to WordPress and Tumblr? How empowering, right, for people to do their first-ever website. That's always exciting. It's really good, yeah. There's still a, a lot of great groups doing that. Um, we've had a ton of fun tonight. It's been very educational and, and virtuous, I feel. Not quite as uh, appy as, as some, some weeks. <laughs> thanks for tuning in and joining us. We've really enjoyed speaking with you tonight. Um, thanks to Fiona Tweedy, Damien Irving and Caitlin Thaney, our guests this evening. Thanks to Dan for pushing our buttons and Simon and Laura for being here with me. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.